0: Rather than seeking to define and live by good versus evil, let's flip the question. Let's define life instead. But to do that, we must first seek it out. So join us as we Deresh Chai, as we seek life. Hey everybody, welcome to the Deresh Chai Experiment, the show where we look to the negative character examples in scripture, and in them, we find a bit of ourselves. Well, Israel is there. They have arrived. In verse 1 of this chapter, which served as the final verse of the last Parsha, Israel arrived at Shittim, which is on the east side of the Jordan, across from Jericho. Last week, for the first time, we saw Israel begin to be victorious. For the first time since leaving Mount Sinai, they have not only fought, but have won victory after victory. Now sure, in these early victories, there were missteps, a bit of grumbling, because the path to get here was taking just way too long. But in this, there was another victory as the people repented for the first time, and the people asked Moses to intercede on their behalf. Things that had not occurred before in Israel. The people are learning. And boy, are they learning. Mixed in with these victories is just a snippet of the elders standing up in faith and calling water from a rock. Not only is Israel learning faith, they are growing in power. They are ready to take up the challenge of the task that has been set before them. God is surely with them and they are prepared to take the land. And just like that, the journeys that began only 11 chapters ago are over. 39 years have passed and Israel is now in place for the conquests but there's still a lot of Torah left. There is a lot to cover before Israel takes even one more step towards the land that has been promised to them. Not only that, there's a lot of numbers left as well. This book that began boring and confusing we're going to find is going to end in a very similar way. Boring chapters of census numbers and dispositions of the people of Israel, discussions of inheritance and the finer points of sacrificial law, and interspersed random laws that don't seem to fit the overall theme. Once again, we're going to be faced with a seeming hodgepodge of text that just seems thrown together. But before we get there, we have just a little more narrative. And once again, it is a narrative that is a classic that is often told in Sunday school as well as being used by opponents of the Bible to point out just how silly this book really is. But in reality as israel comes to the end of their journeys we read another story of a man who makes a journey a man named balaam and his donkey and as is often the case when people come to the story they tend to misread it because they get caught up in the fact that there is a talking donkey in this story and as we do as westerners we fixate on the oddity rather than digging down to what the oddity is attempting to reveal to us and one thing that should stick out to us is that israel is only a background character in this narrative. For the next three chapters, the actors are going to be primarily foreigners and pagans, and one prophet. A prophet who speaks to Hashem. A prophet who hears from Hashem. And a prophet who obeys Hashem. But as the chapter opens, it seems as if this prophet is a good guy. But as the story proceeds, we discover that not as all what it seems. So let's open up to Numbers 22 and read the story of Belak, Belam, and the talking donkey. Numbers 22 two through the end of the chapter. And Balak the son of Zippor saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites. And Moab was exceedingly afraid of the people because they were many. And Moab was in dread because of the children of Israel. And Moab said to the elders of Midian, Now this company is licking up all that is around us, as an ox licks up the grass of the field. Now Balak, the son of Thippor, was king over the Moabites at the time. And he sent messengers to Balaam, the son of Beor at Pethor, which is near the river, in the land of the sons of his people, to call him, saying, See, a people has come from Mizraim. See, they have covered the surface of the land and are settling next to me. And now please come at once, curse this people for me, for they are too strong for me. It might be that I strike them and drive them out of the land, for I know that he whom you bless is blessed, and he whom you curse is cursed. And the elders of Moab and the elders of Midian left with the fees for divination in their hand. And they came to Balaam and spoke the words of Balak to him. And he said to them, Spend the night here, and I shall bring back word to you, as Hashem speaks to me. So the heads of Moab stayed with Balaam. And Elohim came to Balaam and said, Who are these men with you? And Balaam said to Elohim, Balak, son of Zippor, king of Moab, has sent to me, saying, See, a people has come out of Egypt, and cover the surface of the land. Come now, curse them for me. It might be that I am able to fight against them, and drive them out. And Elohim said to Balaam, Do not go with them. You do not curse the people, for they are blessed. And Balaam rose in the morning, and said to the heads of Balak, Go back to your land, for Hashem has refused to allow me to go with you. And the heads of Moab arose and went to Balak, and said, Balaam refuses to come with us. Then Balak again sent heads, more numerous and more esteemed than they. And they came to Balaam and said to him, This is what Balak the son of Zippor said, Do not be withheld from coming to me, please, for I honor you very greatly, and whatever you say to me I do. Therefore please come curse this people for me. And Balaam answered and said to the servants of Balak, "'Though Balak were to give me his house filled with silver and gold, I am, "'I am unable to go beyond the word of Hashem my God to do less or more. "'And now please you also stay here tonight "'and let me find out what more Hashem says to me.' "'And Elohim came to Balaam that night and said, "'If the men come to call you, arise and go with them, "'but only the word which I speak to you that you do.' "'And Balaam rose in the morning and saddled his donkey, and went with the heads of Moab. But the displeasure of Elohim burned, because he went, and the messenger of Hashem stationed himself in the way as an adversary against him. And he was riding on his donkey, and his two servants were with him. And the donkey saw the messenger of Hashem standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand. And the donkey turned aside out of the way and went into the field. And so Balaam struck the donkey to turn her back onto the way. Then the messenger of Hashem stood in a narrow passage between the vineyard with a wall on this side and a wall on that side. And when the donkey saw the messenger of Hashem, she pushed herself against the wall and crushed Balaam's foot against the wall. So he struck her again. And the messenger of Hashem went further and stood in the narrow place where there was no way to turn aside right or left. And when the donkey saw the messenger of Hashem, she lay down under Balaam. So Balaam's displeasure burned, and he struck the donkey with his staff. Then Hashem opened the mouth of the donkey, and she said to Bilam, What have I done to you that you have stricken me these three times? And Balaam said to the donkey, Because you have mocked me. I wish there was a sword in my hand, for I would have killed you by now. And the donkey said to Balaam, Am I not your donkey on which you have ridden ever since I became yours to this day? Was I ever known to do so to you? And he said, No. Then Hashem opened Bilaam's eyes and saw the messenger of Hashem standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand, and he bowed his head and fell on his face. And the messenger of Hashem said to him, Why have you struck your donkey these three times? See, I have come out to stand against you because your way is reckless before me. And the donkey saw me and turned aside from me these three times. If she had not turned aside from me, I certainly would have killed you by now and let her live. And Balam said to the messenger of Hashem, I have sinned, for I did not know you stood in the way against me. And now, if evil is in your eyes, let me turn back. And the messenger of Hashem said to Balaam, Go with the men, but only the word that I speak to you, that you speak. Balaam then went with the heads of Balak. And when Balak heard that Balaam was coming, he went out to meet him at the city of Moab, which is on the border at the Arnon, which is the extremity of the border. And Balak said to Balaam, did I not urgently send to you, calling for you? Why did you not come to me? Am I not able to honor you? And Balaam said to Balak, See, I have come to you. Now am I at all able to say somewhat? The word that Elohim put to my mouth, that I speak. And Balaam went with Balak, and they came to Kiryat Khutzot. And Balak sacrificed cattle and sheep, and he sent some to Balaam and the heads who were with him. And it came to be in the morning that Balak took Balaam and took him up to the high places of Baal, And from there, he saw the extremity of the camp. Israel is planted. They are settled. The chapter opens with Israel simply camping in the plains of Moab, but we're going to find in three chapters when the narrative returns to Israel that they have settled. They are dwelling on the east side of the Jordan. And if you'll remember back to just two lessons ago, this is a state of affairs that's not common for Israel in the book of Numbers. They dwelt in Kadesh Barnea for 38 years or so, and now they're dwelling in Shittim, inside the borders of another nation, a nation that's not necessarily on the chopping block of the conquest, unless they choose to be. And that nation is Moab, a cousin nation of sorts to Israel. You see, Moab was one of the sons slash grandsons of Lot. Lot. It's a son that was born to his daughter when she slept with him after the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And over this nation sits the king Balak. Interesting, Balak is the son of Tippor, the masculine version of the name of Moses' wife, Zipporah. This is interesting because it is just the first of several words that occur here at the beginning of this chapter that point us back to the beginning of Exodus. What do we read in verse 3? The king of Moab was afraid of the people because they were many. Exodus 1.12 But the more they afflicted them, the more they increased and grew, and they were in dread of the children of Israel. And Balak even makes mention that this people is a people that has come up out of Egypt. From the very beginning we find allusions to the conditions that Israel lived under while in Egypt. They are many. The nation that they are dwelling in is in dread of them. They are afraid that should it come to military action they will be consumed. And so Balak takes a similar course of action as the king of Egypt. Exodus 1.10. Come, let us act wisely towards them, lest they increase, and it shall be when fighting befalls us, that they shall join our enemies and fight against us, and shall go up out of the land. The king of Moab seeks to act wisely in his interactions with Israel, and that means weakening them, so that should it come to a fight, he will have the upper hand. And in this we find that Moab takes on the cast of a second Egypt. Now for Pharaoh, acting wisely toward Israel meant killing the sons of the children of Israel. It's a program that would have wiped Israel off the map in just a few generations had it been successful, would have weakened them, and would have ensured an Egyptian victory should it have come to that. But Balak doesn't have this option. Israel is dwelling in the land, but Israel is not at peace with him. And Israel is not under his power in any way. And so Balak seeks a way to put Israel under his power, to weaken them and to give him the upper hand should it come to a military conflict. And his mind goes to Balaam, a prophet of great renown who apparently was successful in cursing and blessing nations. Now, Balaam is an interesting character as he is one of the few biblical characters from the Torah that we have hard archaeological evidence that speaks of him. In 1967, in Deir Allah, Jordan, a place suspiciously close to where Israel is camped at this point in the narrative, an inscription was found that is titled, The Misfortunes of the Book of Balaam, Son of Beor, a Divine Seer, Was He. Three times in this document, the man that is named Balaam, the son of Baor, and what survives in the 119 pieces of this inscription outline a vision that Balaam saw of the council of the gods. Now, I'm not going to get into the contents of the document as it's not pertinent to today's discussion, but I did want to point this out because here in Numbers 22, we read what is considered by many detractors to be one of the most preposterous stories of the Bible and yet it is the story that has the clearest archaeological support for one of the characters of the Torah. There is a bit of irony in this that I find simply magnificent. And so it is that Balak summons Balaam to come to him, to curse Israel for him. And at the end of his request, we find that Balak ascribes a quality to Balaam that we've read before. In verse 6, Balak says, Whoever you curse is cursed, and whoever you bless is blessed. Balak ascribes the power of blessing and cursing to the words of Balaam. But the way this is stated is topsy-turvy from what we've read previously and elsewhere in Scripture. For who is it that has the power to bless and curse? All we have to do is read Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 27 and 28, and we find that blessing and curse come from Hashem himself but he has given us the ability to bless and curse ourselves as well. Deuteronomy eleven twenty six 26-28 See, I am setting before you today a blessing and a curse, the blessing when you obey the commands of Hashem your Elohim, which I command you today, and the curse if you do not obey the commands of Hashem your Elohim, but turn aside from the way which I command you today, to go after other mighty ones which you have not known. God has given us the power to bless and to curse ourselves. But there is another means of blessing and cursing. It's one that we read of very early in the Bible. Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. And I shall bless those who bless you, and curse him who curses you. And in you all the clans of the earth shall be blessed. What is it that Balak claims of Balaam? If you curse them, they'll be cursed. And if you bless them, they will be blessed. But Balak has it backward. If Balaam blesses Israel, he will be blessed. And if Balaam curses Israel, he will be cursed. But as we continue reading, we will discover that Balaam ends up blessing Israel with his mouth. But he ends up being cursed in the end. Why is this? Why is this character so upside down? That's something that we're going to be discussing a little more next week. And so messengers from Balak travel to Balaam's location, and they present his offering, along with the fee to hire him for this bit of cursing. Balaam invites the messengers to spend the night, and during the night, God comes to Balaam and speaks to him. Who are these men with you? God asks. Well, they are messengers from Balak, and he wants me to curse the people that have come out of Egypt who now cover this land. And God responds, Do not go with them. You will not curse them, for they are blessed. So Balaam awakes, and he sends the men away, telling them that Hashem has refused to allow him to go with them. And they leave, and they report back to Balak. Already we see something of interest. Balaam truly did speak with Hashem. God spoke to Balaam, this prophet from the nations, this prophet for hire. This prophet who, if we are to believe the only archaeological evidence that we have of this man, spoke to other gods as well. Also spoke to the God of all creation. And in verse 18, Balaam calls Hashem his God, the God he worships, even if he does speak to other gods. This is a state that we've discussed previously. It's called henotheism. It's a belief system in a pantheon of gods with one God that is the primary and is at the head of the pantheon. And yet, this man who speaks to and hears from God becomes a curse, a warning a proverb for future generations of what to avoid. And in this we see, in Balaam, a kind of anti-Moses. He hears the voice of God, he speaks to him, and he claims to keep his word exactingly. And yet his heart is so very far from the will of God, he does not have the accompanying humility to go with these qualities. Well, Balak has been refused and he does not like it. He needs an edge over Israel before it comes to war. And so he sends more men, men with more honor, and they offer Balaam more riches and more reward. And again, Balaam refuses. He tells the men up front, even if Balak were to give me everything I could ever conceive of, I could not do anything beyond the word of Hashem, my God. At this, Balaam should have sent the men away. He had already been told by Hashem what he was expected to do. But he doesn't. He invites the men to stay in order to hear what Hashem's will is. And once again, God comes to Balaam in the night. And what God tells Balaam in the night is a bit confusing. In some versions, it seems as if Hashem gives permission for Balaam to go with the men. These versions steep the message in this way. Since they have come to call on you, then rise and go with them. Other versions put a slightly different spin on this phrase by turning it into a conditional statement. If they come to call on you, presumably in the future, then go with them. Now, there is a problem in interpreting this passage, as both are seemingly accurate. There is an if in the Hebrew, but this word em can also mean when, whether, and although, among some other Old English phrasing that's not really helpful at this time. So there does seem to be some sort of condition to the statement. Now add to this, the phrase is all steeped in the perfect tense. Now in Biblical Hebrew, there is not past tense, present tense, and future tenses, as there are in English. There is only the perfect tense, the things that have been done and are completed. And the imperfect tense, the things that are still being done and have not yet been completed. So the phrase reads something like, If or when the men have come to you, go with them. Now, is this permission? If they have come, and they have, then go with them. Or is this a condition? If the men come, and only after this is complete, then go with them. And that's why there is disagreement on how to translate this passage. The answer to this conundrum may never be solved. So let's look at the options of what each view means. And Balaam rose early, saddled his donkey, and went with the men, and the anger of Hashem was kindled against them. If this statement was permission, then why is the anger of Hashem kindled against him so suddenly when permission had been given? Now, this might be a case of God giving what a person wants, even though it goes against his will. Uh, Something similar to the quail that Hashem rained down on Israel when they desired meat. In essence, it's Hashem saying, you want to go? Well, then go. But the fact that Balaam goes does not make him happy, because Balaam has already been warned and told not to go. And Hashem is not a man that he should change his mind. He simply wants Balaam to reveal what is secretly nestled in his heart, and so God gives him permission to do so. But if this statement was conditional, then Balaam is being disobedient and obtuse. The men did not come to Balaam again to request him to go, and so Balaam is construing this as permission, and Hashem has the right to be angry. Because Balaam claims that he cannot do or say anything that is not directly commanded by God. But the very first opportunity he gets, he chooses to be obtuse and to misunderstand what Hashem has told him. And in doing so, he pretends to righteousness. And the language it clues us into this. And what is it that Balaam does in verse 21? Chapter 22, verse 3. He rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him. Wait a minute. What I just read is not from Numbers 22, but is from another chapter 22. Genesis 22, verse 3. And Avraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son, and he split the wood for the ascending offering, and he arose and he went to the place which God had commanded him. And in this we see the text casting Balaam not only as an anti-Moses, but also as an anti-Abraham of sorts. A man who speaks to God but is of the nations. A man who twists the words of God to make them mean what suits him best. A man who arises early in the morning to pursue his own benefit, rather than what's been commanded to him not to pursue a sacrifice and giving up of everything but in order to curse and to gain for himself the honor and goods that had been promised to him by the nations balaam is not leaving for the purpose of sacrifice obedience and righteousness he is leaving early for the purpose of wealth and honor and renown and that is all the difference And so the anger of Hashem burns against him, and the messenger of Hashem stationed himself against him as an adversary. Once again, there's a couple of things to address in this verse. First off, the verse is the first occurrence of the word Satan in the Hebrew scriptures. This word simply means adversary, and it's more of a title or a job description than it is a proper name. Because it is the messenger of Hashem that's acting in the role of Satan in this verse, against the one who's on his way to curse Israel. And that reveals that Hashem can act in the role of adversary just as much as the one we call Satan. It's only a matter of perspective as to who is playing this role. Are you for God or against God? And your answer, not just in your words, but in your actions, will determine the one who plays the role of adversary against you. The second thing to address is the messenger of Hashem, or the angel of the Lord situation. Now it's very common in Christian and even some messianic circles to say that the angel of the Lord, when we see this in the Bible, that it is what is called a Christophany, an appearance of Jesus on the scene before he came in human form. The thought process goes something like this. First off, the angel of the Lord, as I will call him, because that's what you're going to find most often. He always appears in the text with the definitive in front of him. He is the angel of the Lord, not just an angel. And so this angel is one that is singular and definitive angel. Second, because the angel of the Lord allows himself to be bowed to, and it is claimed that angels don't allow this, and Paul directly condemns the worship of angels, and obviously this is Jesus, because he allows Balaam to bow before him. But when Joshua encounters the captain of the heavenly host in Joshua 5, Joshua falls before him and does obeisance, and the angel does not stop him. Joshua five thirteen through 15 And it came to be when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted his eyes, and he looked, and he saw a man standing opposite him with a sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No, for I have come to you as captain of the host of Hashem. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and did obeisance and said to him, What is my master saying to his servant? And the captain of the host of Hashem said to Joshua, Take your sandal off your foot, for the place where you stand is holy. And Joshua did so. So, that might not be the best argument for this. Third, because the angel of the Lord is addressed as Hashem and answers to this name, then it is believed that this is indeed Hashem in the flesh. And because Hashem in the flesh is Yeshua, then the angel of the Lord is Yeshua. But in the ancient Near East, it was common for a messenger to speak to a foreign king that he had been sent to as if he were the king himself. The messenger could speak on behalf of the king and make deals on behalf of the king up to the point that had been predetermined before the messenger was sent. The messenger would speak on behalf of the king in the first person and would answer when addressed in the name of the king that he represented. It might be better to steep this term Angel of the Lord with a term that might help us to better understand this role. Ambassador of the Lord. The ambassador of Hashem. The one who has the authority to speak and answer on behalf of Hashem as his representative in the angelic realm. And finally, there is one verse that is trotted out as the linchpin of understanding that the angel of the Lord is Yeshua. Genesis 48, 15 through 16 as Jacob is blessing the sons of Joseph. And he blessed Joseph, and he said, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Yitschak walked, the God whom has fed me all my life long to this day, the messenger who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the youths, and let my name be called upon them, and the name of my fathers Abraham and Yitzhak, and let them increase to a multitude in the midst of all the earth. In this verse, Jacob calls Elohim, the messenger who has redeemed me from all evil. And since Yeshua is the only redeemer, then the messenger that is being spoken of is obviously Yeshua. It's the angel of the Lord. But if this isn't the case, then what do we do with verses such as these? Exodus six six? Say therefore to the children of Israel, I am Hashem, and I shall bring you out from under the burdens of the Mitzvahites, and I shall deliver you from their enslaving, and shall redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. Exodus 15.13 In your loving commitment you led the people whom you have redeemed. In your strength you guided them to your holy dwelling. Hashem acts as a Redeemer. Are we required, because of how Jacob speaks about the messenger of the Lord, to understand that this is the only way? That it must be a Christophany? No, I'm not going to say that this is not a Christophany. I'm simply admitting that I don't know. I will say that the angel of the Lord, in my opinion, is not required to be a Christophany. It is entirely possible that we simply don't understand the ancient Near East and the role of messenger well enough, not to mention that we don't have nearly enough insight into the functioning of the spirit realm and the operation of angels to make this claim absolute. And once again, we see one of those places where the text is not exceptionally clear. And the way that we approach the text and how we fill in the gaps reveals a lot about ourselves. Moving on, the angel stands in the way of Balaam with his sword drawn, and the donkey that Balaam is riding sees the angel, but Balaam does not. Now this story is designed to be a bit tongue-in-cheek. It's presenting an ironic view that is meant to force us to consider the preposterousness of it all. How did the story begin? It began with messengers being sent to Balaam that he would see, and that presented a message that Balaam wanted to hear. In opposition to this is the voice of God who seeks to prevent this trip. But now that the trip is happening, and the messenger is now coming from God to stand in his way, and the voice, the voice that Balaam hears, is one that comes from the gullet of a beast of burden. The contrast of these images is meant to get us to slow down and truly consider all that is occurring in this narrative. And the narrative is one that we're all familiar with. The donkey sees the angel and first goes off the road into a field. And in response to this, Balaam lashes out in frustration and strikes the donkey. Then the donkey sees the angel again in a narrow place, and the donkey goes to the far side and drags Balaam's leg against the wall. Once again, Balaam strikes the donkey to get the donkey back onto the path. Finally, the angel stands in the path in an even narrower space, where there's no room around and the donkey simply lies down in the middle of the path. And now Balaam is not just frustrated with his donkey, he's angry. And so he strikes the donkey one last time. And it's only now that Hashem opens the mouth of the donkey to speak, and what proceeds from his mouth is a well-reasoned argument that stands in contrast to the unreasoning brutality of Balaam. Why have you struck me these three times? And what is Balaam's answer? You have mocked me. You have dishonored me. The word used by Balaam there, it goes deeper than this. It's a word that can mean to abuse or to act severely with someone. Why did I abuse you? It's because you abused me. The argument seems sound. The donkey did rub his leg against the wall, after all. But the greatest abuse that Balaam felt was the abuse to his honor. He had been proverbially struck on the right cheek and shamed, and so his response was to strike back. In fact, not only to strike back, but Balaam claims that if he had had a sword, he would have killed the donkey then and there. But the donkey wasn't abusing Balaam. We know this. The donkey knows this. Balaam, however, is blinded to this. And little did Balaam know that there was a being with the sword who was standing there prepared to slay Balaam, for his own abuse and shaming of his master. And so the donkey continues with this cogent and well-reasoned response. The donkey says, Come now, Balaam, you know me. Have I ever acted this way before? Did you even slow down to think that there might be something going on here that you were not able to perceive? Or are you so wrapped up in your own importance, and your own honor, your own earthly reward, that you were blinded to the truth of the situation? And with that the eyes of Balaam were opened, and Balaam saw the angel that stood in his way. And we get the feeling that the opening of Balaam's eyes to see was a state that was just as contrary to nature as was the opening of the donkey's mouth to speak. And now the angel speaks, the contrast of the messengers that had come earlier in the story. Why did you strike your donkey, he repeats. I have come here to oppose you because your way is reckless. In many translations it says that your way is perverse. But the word used is one that bears the meaning of being rash or rushing headlong or to hurl something. The actions were not described as evil or perverse as some translations state. It's just reckless. It's unthinking. Then the angel makes a statement that flies in the face of what Balaam thought just a few moments ago. This donkey saved your life. You saw him as shaming you or abusing you in some way, but the truth is that if it weren't for this donkey, you would be dead. And with this, Balaam acknowledges his failure. I did not know that you stood against me. If this is evil in your eyes, just tell me and I will turn back to which the angel responds with what Hashem said earlier, minus the conditional. Go with the men, but be absolutely sure that you only say what I tell you to say. And with that, Balaam makes it to Moab meets Balak. Now when Balak meets Balaam, he assumes an improper motive for Balaam's delay. Were you holding out on me? Were you trying to drive up the price? Didn't you know that my request was urgent and that I would reward you greatly even if you had not delayed? To which Balaam responds righteously, I am here. I have come, so quit your complaining, but be warned. I am only able to speak the words that Hashem puts in my mouth to speak. The underlying warning being that you may not get out of me what you want from me, but I am here because as long as I am here, there is opportunity to get from you What you have promised. And so the next morning, Balak leads Balaam up to the top of a high place to look over the camp of Israel, and that's where this chapter ends. What will happen? Balak wants Balaam to curse Israel, but Balaam is under strict orders to only say what Hashem gives him to say over Israel. There's a tension present here, and a cliffhanger, so to speak, that will have to wait until next week to resolve. So Balaam this prophet and seer. Balaam gets more mentions and more time is spent on him in the course of scripture than some other significant characters. Most of the twelve disciples of Yeshua have fewer mentions than Balaam by far. Miriam, the mother of Yeshua, gets less page time than Balaam. Naaman, the leper's pagan convert, gets less time. Most of the judges of the book that bear that name are mentioned fewer times than Balaam. Balaam is mentioned more than Sodom and Gomorrah, and the list goes on and on. Balaam is a significant secondary character in the Torah and in all of Scripture. And this means that there is something of significance that we can learn from what we are told of this man, and there is indeed a lot that can be said about him. Now, most of the mentions in the Old Testament are simply recalling what occurred here. The focus of these mentions is the fact that Hashem turned the curse of Balaam into a blessing for the people of Israel. The other mentions have to do with what happened to Balaam and how he met his end, which we'll get to in time, but not today or even next week. In the New Testament, Balaam gets three mentions, and in each of these three, the various authors that mention Balaam speak on the motives of Balaam, and each uses him as a comparison for something greater. Second Peter 2, 1-3 But there also came to be false prophets among the people, as also among you there shall be false prophets, false teachers, who shall secretly de- bring in destructive heresies and deny the master who brought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves, and many shall follow their destructive ways, because of whom the way of truth shall be evil spoken of, and in greed with fabricated words they shall use you for gain. From of old their judgment does not linger, and their destruction does not slumber. Continuing on in verses 11-19, through But these, speaking of those false prophets and teachers, who will infiltrate the church, Like natural, unreasoning beasts have been born to be caught and destroyed. Blaspheme that which they do not know. Shall be destroyed in their destruction. Being about to receive the wages of unrighteousness, deeming indulgence in the day of pleasure. Spots and blemishes, reveling in their own deceptions while they feast with you. Having eyes filled with an adulteress and unable to cease from sin. Enticing unstable beings. Having a heart trained in greed. Children of a curse having left the right way, then went astray, having followed the way of Balaam, the son of Baor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness, but he was rebuked for his transgression. A dumb donkey speaking with the voice of a man restrained the madness of the prophet. These are the fountains without water, clouds driven by a storm, to whom the blackest darkness is kept for ever. For speaking arrogant nonsense they entice, through the lusts of the flesh, through indecencies, the ones who have indeed escaped from those living in delusion, promising them freedom, though themselves being slaves of corruption, for one is a slave to whatever overcomes him. Jude 1, 3-5 says, Beloved ones, making all haste to write to you concerning our common salvation, I felt it necessary to write to you, urging you earnestly contend for the faith which was once for all delivered to the holy ones. For certain men have slipped in, those whose judgment was written about long ago, wicked ones perverting the grace of God for indecency and denying the only master Hashem and our master Yeshua the Messiah. But I intend to remind you Though you once knew this, that Hashem, having saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And then continuing on in verses 11 through 13 Woe to them, because they have gone the way of Cain, and gave themselves to the delusions of Balaam for a reward, and perished in the rebellion of Korah. These are rocky reefs in your love feasts, feasting with you feeding themselves without fear, waterless clouds borne about by the winds, late autumn trees without fruit, twice dead, pulled up by the roots, wild waves of the sea foaming up their own shame, straying stars for whom blackness of darkness is kept forever. In both of these passages we are told of the false ones in our midst, those who have been trained in greed, those who seek to entice away from the faith through pleasure, those who speak a good game, but whose actions do not line up with the truth. These false teachers, these false prophets, those who lead astray secretly bringing destructive heresies even to the point of the denial of the Master, to the denial of Hashem who redeemed them. These false prophets and teachers, they have gone the way of Balaam. And while Balaam was restrained by being rebuked by a dumb donkey speaking with the voice of a man, the way of Balaam was still destruction. Even with this rebuke he went astray, because he loved money and notoriety more than he loved righteousness. And we find in this one way of spotting false teachers and prophets, those who operate for gain. Those who seek to make allowances for sin. Those who speak righteousness and even blessing, but their actions point to another course. The final mention of Balaam in the New Testament is one that we will touch on in next week's lesson. This man Balaam is one that we can look to as an example of those in our midst who are not of us. What will they look like? They will look righteous they will speak of hashem they will even speak to and hear from hashem they will claim i can only speak and do what hashem has given me to speak and do and yet their actions will teach others to curse themselves their actions will speak of seeking after riches rather than seeking after righteousness their actions will speak of seeking honor and notoriety and fame and glory for themselves rather than seeking honor and glory for yeshua their actions align with deuteronomy 11 verse 28 and the curse if you do not obey the commands of hashem your god but turn aside from the way which i command you today to go after other gods which you have not known but more than that Balaam presents a picture of what we all face in our lives the choice between two messengers. One will promise a master that will give you all that you could possibly want. He will promise wealth and honor and anything that your heart might desire. The other will promise a life of righteousness. And in order to achieve that, you might have to give up on wealth. You might have to give up on honor. You might have to actively turn away promises of greatness. But with this master, you will find life. And these messengers represent two masters, Hashem or the world. Matthew six twenty four. No one is able to serve two masters, for either he shall hate the one and love the other, or else he shall cleave to the one and despise the other. You are not able to serve God and mammon. Balaam made his choice. He chose to pursue the things of the world, and when Hashem stood in his way, he blamed his circumstances rather than slowing down and seeking God's will. He probably even ascribed the labeled spiritual attack to the experience that he was facing. And it truly was. It was the work of an adversary. A spiritual force stood in the way that Balaam was determined was the right way. And this is a warning to us all. When we have determined the right thing, when we have chosen our way and something stands in our way, we must slow down and take stock. Is the adversary that stands in our way from Hashem or from the enemy? Is the Father himself opposed to our path? When something stands in your way, when your path forward is obstructed, it's time to stop and take stock, to seek the Father's face, and to seek His will. And if righteousness requires it, to abandon our path for the sake of the kingdom and the people of God. Balaam offers for us an interesting picture. Because we should live out his words, we should do the things he says. Matthew 23, 1-3 Then Yeshua spoke to the crowds and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on the seat of Moses. Therefore whatever they say to you, to guard, guard and do. But do not do according to their works, for they say, and they do not do. Acting in this way leads to death. It speaks of a one who has the appearance of righteousness, but inwardly he's filled with the bones of the dead. But faithfulness, righteousness, life comes through shunning the practice of self-righteousness and recognizing our own failures. So, Deir Ashkai, seek life. Shalom. Thank you for tuning in to Deir Kai. If you would like to find out more or support this ministry, head over to SeekLifeSC.com. That's SeekLifeSC.com. The music was provided by the Exodus Road Band. Check them out on iTunes or ExodusRoadBand.com. We'll see you again next time as we Dare Shkai, as we Seek Life. Shalom.